Well, good afternoon, everyone. This is Chris Tubbs, president of the California Fire Chiefs Association. And today we're going to be talking about an initiative that's going to be on the 2024 November ballot. And it's uh, called the Taxpayer Protection and Government Accountability Act. And I'm real excited to have our guest speaker today, uh, Kyle Packham, who's the Advocacy and Public Affairs Director with the California Special Districts Association. And Kyle has been very instrumental in informing uh, the California Fire Chiefs Association about this bring awareness uh, of this initiative to us. And so we thought it'd be a great idea to do a podcast and share that across the entire um, California Fire Service membership. And so with that, first of all, I want to welcome Kyle here. And Kyle, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your role with CSDA, that would be a great way for us to start. Thank you, Chief Tubbs. Yes, Kyle Packham. I'm the Advocacy and Public Affairs Director over at CSDA. We're the California Special Districts Association. And so CSDA, we represent all types of special districts. And special districts, what are they? Some people might ask. Well, they're local service specialists. And so fire protection districts, such as the one that you're a fire chief at, as well as water districts, wastewater districts, flood control districts. We even have mosquito abatement districts, transit districts. They're local government agencies that focus on delivering one specific service or sometimes a small suite of services to a community, to a region that needs that service, so a service that a city or a county isn't providing. And they're able to focus on doing that with a specialization so that they can maximize the efficiency and the effectiveness of government and really think long-term to ensure that the citizens are receiving the essential services that they need. You know, I really, um, some point in time, I'd love to have a discussion about the California Special Districts Association and sort of some of the conversation we had before we started the podcast about um, special districts and what we feel are some of the benefits of, of that. But today, obviously, we're going to focus on this uh, initiative. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the initiative and why awareness for it is really important. Sure, I'd be happy to do so. So this initiative, uh, they, they, they started the qualification process back in 2022 and that first, it was looking like they might be able to qualify for the 2022 ballot. And so that's when CSDA got involved, along with other statewide associations that represent uh, local government uh, service providers, infrastructure providers, such as our colleagues over at the California League of Cities or the California State Association of Counties, who are both also in opposition to this measure. Fortunately, the measure did not receive the requisite number of signatures to qualify for the November 2022 ballot. However, the deadlines were arranged such that they were able to keep on working on that. And they eventually just February 1st qualified for that 2024 ballot. Now, in a moment, as we talk through it, you'll see that one of the things that's particularly uh, scary about this measure is that it actually has a retroactivity date that should it pass in November of 2024, it will have a retroactivity provision three years back to January 1, 2022. So we can talk about some of the implications of that. But this measure, it's sponsored by an organization called the California Business Roundtable. It's a collection of Fortune 500 corporations here in California, some of the biggest corporations you can think of. 
And they initially attempted to do this back in 2018. They ended up uh, actually qualifying a very similar measure for the 2018 ballot. However, the primary funders of that effort was the soda industry. And the soda industry used the qualification of that ballot measure to negotiate a compromise with the state legislature. And then they agreed to remove the measure from the ballot by getting a moratorium on the soda tax. You might remember back then, everybody was talking about imposing a soda tax, you know, to help with kids getting diabetes and everything else from soda. And so once they negotiated that moratorium, they pulled it off the ballot and they pulled everything off the ballot with it. But the California Business Roundtable kept out it. They found additional funders. They raised $15 million in order to qualify this particular measure for the ballot. So who who at this time around, and I've heard that there's sort of the soda industry is still sort of connected to this perhaps in some way. From your understanding, what what is really the main driver for this initiative? Is it is it really just about taxes or is there a specific um, intent? You know, is there a group and is there a specific intent that they're trying to achieve just like the one you mentioned before? It's hard to say. I think there's people that suspect as much. And certainly if you look down the list of major contributors, the people that have contributed the most to the qualification thus far happen to be from the development and real estate community. So you could try to draw conclusions that maybe there's certain taxes or fees along those lines that are of particular interest. However, uh, the political action committee for the California Business Roundtable was responsible for significant shares of the funding. And those contributors are from uh, other large corporations. And when you read the, the measure, you can only, it's not really fair to assume necessarily what might be driving it. It's more objective to look at what would it do. And so when you look at what would it do, uh, you mentioned they've dubbed it the Taxpayer Protection and Government Accountability Act, which sounds really nice. They, they probably should have thrown in apple pie and puppies or something else into that title. What it's been officially titled uh, through the circulation process is limits ability of voters and state and local governments to raise revenues for government services. And it is a constitutional amendment. This would amend the California state constitution. And it really reaches back and amends for your listeners that are familiar with Proposition 218 and Proposition 13, as well as 26. Those are some of the biggest propositions in local and state government uh, finance and revenue that uh, have, have ever happened in our state. And this goes in and makes some significant adjustments to those measures, really to severely restrict the ability of voters to decide on to make decisions in order to raise revenues for government services that they may want, as well as um, to um, make it easier for corporations and others to sue the government. And as you know, when you sue the government, who are you suing? You're not, you're not suing Governor Newsom. You're not suing yeah. President Biden. You are suing the taxpayer, really. And ultimately, it's the taxpayer that has to defend those lawsuits. And so, you know, we could dive in and talk about what some of these restrictions are and, and how they go about that. 
Yeah, I'd like to, to jump into that. One thing I would I would add to that um, from, you know, your guys' analysis and certainly what you've shared with us is that this isn't just taxes, it's it's fees as well, right? So in the case of fire departments and fire districts, for many of us, we um, we levy fees for certain fire prevention services and fire um, prevention activity. This would then also be um, subject to uh, this constitutional change, which means, as I understand it, um, where I may have uh, the ability to raise my fees every three years through a simple um, board action, this would require us to go to the public and get a two-thirds majority for that fee increase. Is that correct? Uh, well, I'm going to answer this like our attorney would answer it. And uh, I am not an attorney. I do sometimes play one on TV. Uh, it depends. Yeah. <laughs> and so I also want to give a caveat of everything that we're going to talk about today in terms of how we read this and how we assume that it works it's going to depend on probably a decade's worth of lawsuits before we really know what it does. It's one of those things that you'll have to wait till it passes and then see what the courts say about it before you really know what it does. And a lot of that's because it's written so poorly. And if you look at, you know, a lot of these initiatives, you know, going all the way back, whether it's Proposition 218 or any other, because they're written by just some attorney by a group that wants to qualify for this for the ballot it's not vetted by the legislative council it doesn't go through the through committee process in the state legislature where our elected representatives can can wrestle with it where the public can come in and vet it and point out problems and errors and you get the light of day this is just written by this group's attorney as to what they want and so Later, it'll go to the court system and everybody's going to argue over what it actually says. And, you know, at this point, I would assume the worst. And so what does it do on the so there's the fee side and there's the revenue side and then there's the local government side and there's the state side. And so let's start with the fee side at the local level. And then we can talk more about the tax side at the local level, because that's really the bread and butter for the fire protection service. And then we can talk a little about the state side, because while you know we're focused on local government services here and today, really the state level revenues have a huge impact, as we all know, in terms of their ability to fund various programs and projects and grants and larger regional and statewide efforts that are certainly of interest and of, of support in our partnership and what we do when it comes to fire protection or any other emergency or other essential service. And so starting with the fee side um, at the local level. And so this is if these are fees, whether they're the fire protection style fees you've talked about, or whether they may be related to water or any other type of local government service under current law, you have what's called it's, is it re is the fee reasonably related to the cost of service? And that was imposed by Proposition 218 in 1996. And that's that's really fair. That that sounds very fair. And in practice, it is pretty fair. I mean, there's been court cases and lawsuits about all of this too. But is it reasonably related to the cost of service? Obviously, if it's not reasonably related to the cost of service, it's a tax and it's not a fee. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of definition around that that gives you some 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 room for 
you know, cost of living adjustments and all those different things that go into effect that you can't possibly predict at the time of imposing a fee exactly what the cost of service would be. However, this initiative would change that word reasonable to actual cost of service. And then it defines actual cost of service as the minimum amount necessary. I don't know about you, Chief Tubbs, but I've got four young kids. You know, I've, I've got a family to support and protect and to love and care for. And when I think about the future that I want to leave to my children, I don't want to leave the minimum amount necessary for them. I mean, we live in the greatest state and the greatest nation. And I think we want to leave the best available for them for their future, not the minimum amount necessary. And that's that's essentially what this would do is it creates this race to the bottom because you could imagine all of the times where some corporation, some dissatisfied individual might choose to sue you to say, well, that's not the minimum amount necessary. Do you really need a nice shiny fire truck? Why don't you get that old one that's uh, falling apart and the tires are flat and everything else? I mean, I don't know what kind of lawsuits they're going to come up with, but the, the, the thing that makes it worse is that in addition to changing it from reasonably related to cost of service to the actual cost and then defining that as minimum amount necessary, it also changes the legal threshold that people can sue the taxpayer under. So right now, that threshold is a preponderance of the evidence. That's 50-50. Again, I'm not an attorney, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn. That's 50-50. This would change it to clear and convincing evidence. That is the highest threshold in civil court, just under criminal court of beyond a reasonable doubt. And so you, the taxpayer, because you know a corporation or, or some dissatisfied individual out there wants to sue and make a, make a deal of this, you, the taxpayer, will have to defend. No, this is the minimum amount necessary. No, this is the actual cost. And I'm proving it with clear and convincing evidence. So the burden is on the taxpayer at that point to defend that lawsuit. Um, so that that's problematic. Uh, and that's, that's really the, the fee side, the biggest issue. Um, it also adds a new provision that says that the fees have to be reasonable to the payer without defining what reasonable is. So who knows what that's going to mean? That will take years of courts uh, lit- litigation payments to lawyers, I'm sure, to figure out. But the other side of this, you get into the taxes, right? And so most fire protection districts receive most of their funding from from taxes. Uh, And when it comes to the tax side of it, it would change a few things. One, it would require a sunset date on every tax measure. And so if your community wants to impose stable, ongoing funding, you wouldn't be able to do that. You'd have to put a sunset date on there. And if they happen to have passed a tax measure in the last year, it would be invalidated by this should this pass. And so essentially, then you have the statewide voters across California, because of this retroactive provision, which who knows if that's even constitutional, but they're going to try it. You know, you could have the voters in Los Angeles and Riverside and Yuba and Sacramento and wherever else, they're all going to be voting on the statewide measure. And they could be invalidating an action that the voters in Marin chose to take in 2022. Mm -hmm. And where is the fairness in that from a local voter, local control standpoint? Why should anybody outside of Marin get to tell the people of Marin what they want to provide to their community? Uh, So so that that's that's an interesting measure. 
that requires that sunset. It also, uh, under the Constitution currently, if voters impose an initiative, so if it's a voter initiative collected by petition, put on the ballot, voted on by voters, it's a majority vote to decide, a simple majority to decide if they want to impose a tax in order to provide a local service. This would change that to a two-thirds vote. And so that's, again, a very interesting, it's a little bit ironic because this ballot measure will only require a simple majority to approve this ballot measure. Yeah, in your it, it wants to tell you with a majority of the statewide voters to tell the people of your community, oh, no, 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 we're telling you, we know what's best for you. We're very paternalistic. We know what's best for you. You need two-thirds vote, even though we only needed a majority vote to impose this new limitation on your voters in your community. And so that's another interesting measure. Another thing that it does is that it would say that, you know, right now, it will constantly in our state, we're a growing state. Uh, we are, we're an evolving state. California today looks very different than it did 50 years ago, than it did 100 years ago. And so communities evolve and change over time. And as a community might be changing, you know, it might be looking to change some of its governance structure and how that works. We've certainly seen where, you know, in Sacramento, for example, uh, Sac Metro Fire District uh, is something that was formed over the consolidation of, I believe it's 17 different other local agencies. And it's like a re- it's a regional fire protection district that serves some incorporated cities as well as some parts of the unincorporated county. And that community ultimately decided that this regional approach uh, was going to be the best approach to provide those services to that community. And every community is entitled to make those decisions. Uh, this would highly complicate the ability for any communities to make those sorts of changes by v- mandating if they're going to create to reorganize their governance structure, they would have to have votes on each and every one of the various funding mechanisms that all of those underlying agencies had. And so you can imagine it's already a very difficult thing to choose to shift from one agency to another. It's done because they're trying to find efficiencies. They're trying to better serve the community. And this would create a real roadblock, especially if those have to now be voted on with a two-thirds vote of the community. And so those are the local level items. And happy to take any questions on that. And then we can talk a little bit about state maybe. Yeah, you know, Kyle, as you're, as you're talking about this, you know, it, it, I'm sort of finding myself reflecting on a lot of the things that I was thinking about when I was reading the draft language, you know, the things that you have posted on CSDA's website around the analysis and all of that. And the more that I read this, you know, the more of these what ifs were coming up in my mind, right? And about the depth of the complexity of the potential impacts. So as you, you know, for example, as you were talking about how, you know, each measure would require this vote, what we've effectively done in this proposal is we've taken away the right of local citizens to determine what level of service do they want and what are they willing to pay for, in a sense. But but what jumps out at me in some of these things, and so to your point, each time you'd have to renew these measures, as a fire chief, you know, one of the things I recognize is over 80% of my budget is for personnel. And public employees have a property right, right? And so what's the implications in labor negotiations? Uh, clearly, you couldn't do a multi-year agreement. You'd have to do a year by year. And I begin to think about what does that look like as a result of a piece of legislation like this? I can't even get my head around that, um, except to say it is 
um, complicated, um, problematic. Um, it takes away the ability of local government really to be good financial managers and planning for the future, right? There's a lot of things that we do that um, we try to build into our processes that reflect the ebbs and flows of an economy, right? We don't try and spend all our money every year. I mean, one of the things we try and do is recognize, hey, I'm going to try at every of my budget cycles to do zero-based budgeting, um, try and, and purchase the things I need, the rest of the money I want to put into my savings account for that rainy day so I don't have to go back to the taxpayers and ask for more money, right? You try to be a good money manager, um, just like you do with your own home budget. And this seems the more that you think about this um, legislation and what the impacts are, the more it seems to introduce a level of complexity and um, uh, a lack of clarity that really undermines, I guess I'd say really undermines what they the stated principle is, which is they're saying they want government accountability and they want to, in, in essence, say, we want to make sure that tax dollars are being spent, spent equitably, fairly, and only the minimum, right? It's like, well, everything in this legislation actually is going to result in the opposite of that. That That's the irony to me. And I think to your point, clearly, um, because we didn't have the normal democratic process that we would around the drafting and the analysis of legislation, we have some people who said, hey, you know, it'd be a good idea, put that down on paper, and then here we are. I think you're absolutely right, Chief Tubbs. You know, there's a saying about the good intentions and the roads that those pave. I don't know how we're going to pave roads under this initiative, but this initiative, if you give the benefit of the doubt to the proponents, there's a lot about it that that sounds pretty reasonable, even if they struck that word from the Constitution and added a different one. Yeah, you know what? What I think it, it sounds it sounds not so bad. I think even even to you know the most uh, liberal, if you will, uh, voter, the idea that. Well, this should be actual cost. Yeah, sure. The actual cost. Why would you want to spend more than the actual cost? You know, I mean, that that sounds sounds not so bad. It's when you dive into the actual mechanics of implementing it that uh, you realize these challenges with it. And you're right. The irony of it is, sadly, that to the extent that this is designed to try to make government more accountable, try to make it more efficient. Uh, it's actually going to have the opposite impact and make government more expensive, uh, waste more money, more bureaucratic, tie more money up into lawsuits. And the citizens and the taxpayers are going to spend money, spend more money and get less. And to your point, you know, particularly at the local government, you know, I won't speak for state and federal because, you know, we we work with our 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 local special districts, but our special districts are governed by a board that is elected by the community that lives in the community that pays the same fees and taxes of the residents that they're representing. These people, trust me, I've spent a lot of time with them. They don't like paying fees and taxes any more than anybody else. And they want to get uh, good services just like everybody else. So they are, they're working their best at it. You know, sometimes they make mistakes. Sometimes they don't, they don't get it exactly right or exactly as they wish, and they keep on trying. They keep on working, but um, they—these are the people that represent their community, and they're sure doing their best because they got to pay those taxes and fees themselves, just like everybody else. 
Yeah. You know, and before we, we jump over to the state piece, you know, the other piece I would add to this, uh, and, and it's not unique to the fire districts, but I, I would just say that, you know, we've been doing a lot of work in this arena lately, the Fire Districts Association of California, FDAC, in analyzing the impacts of ERAF. And especially since, you know, we have seen this rapid change in the wildland environment, um, and how that's impacting our ability uh, to protect the state. And um, as you know, with that legislation, which, you know, we're not debating the legislation, it is what it is, but the financial impact across the state has been, the fire service in California loses $94 million a year as a result of ERAF. And Prop 172, which was designed to help uh, maybe restore some of that funding to local government, has not made it down to the fire district level. It, it stopped at the county level. Again, I'm not trying to debate that or, or you know, draw a judgment. Just a recognition that when we look at this initiative and then we layer in the impact of ERAF and the money that's taken out of a fire district's budget, it, it begins to look um, a lot uglier. Um, and again, I know this is not just you know subject to fire districts. Uh, water districts also are, are impacted uh, by these things as well. And so that's another complication. And I suspect that most Californians don't know that. Um, they're not aware of, and this goes to your point earlier about the importance of the legislative process, you know, of crafting um, language, analyzing the impacts of that language, having that open debate with public input so that ultimately what you end up with incorporates all of this comprehensive um, information so that when we execute it, we actually know what the impact or have a very good idea of what that impact will be. And this, again, I, I use that as an example to reinforce why this is not, from my perspective, very well thought out um, in regards to what is going to be the consequences of this um, if it were to pass. Yeah, you make you make another good point there, Chief Tubbs. And, you know, for your audience members that might not be as familiar with with ERAF, that stands for Educational Revenue Augmentation Fund. It really has very little to do with education, even though that's in the uh, in the name there. And that was a series of measures passed as part of the budget in the 1990s that ultimately diverted about 20% of local government funding that our local governments have never gotten back. That was money that was taken from local governments given to the state of California in order to deal with budget shortfalls at the state of California in the 1990s. And local governments have never had that money back. And so, you know, in some instances, they've been able to turn to things like a special tax voted on and approved by their electorate um, or fees, et cetera, which, as you said, would be compounded by this because it would be more difficult to find those alternative funding sources um, you also mentioned, and I'll just touch on it briefly, the Proposition 172, which came shortly after uh, one of those ERAF diversions, and that was voted on by the people to impose a half-cent sales tax increase in order to help out public safety that was hit by those ERAF diversions. Unfortunately, that uh, money, as you said, has primarily uh, gone to the county level and primarily for uh, county sheriffs, police law enforcement, not for fire protection and certainly not for fire protection districts, for special districts. And so fire protection districts, as well as other special districts, um, have been in a position of doing, you know, more with less for the last uh, 
How long has it been since 96? What are we looking at? Close to 40 years now? Well, let's see. We're at 23 plus another four. Yeah, 27. Get up to 30. All right. Close to 30. All right. So tell me a little bit about um, what you guys have determined the impact at the state level is. Okay. So for the state, everything that applies to locals essentially also applies to the state. But one of the big changes and one of the things that I suspect might be um, somewhat alluring or appealing to at least some voters is that it also requires that state taxes would, should this pass, also have to be voted on by the people. Well, some have speculated that that could essentially be ruled to apply to any level of tax burden increasing on any individual taxpayer, Um, which, you know, that's already a significant uh, decision, even if it only applied to the the major types of taxes that we think of, you know, a sales tax increase or that sort of a thing. But if you could imagine, what if there's currently a tax break for uh, electric vehicles and that tax break sunsets? Um, What if there's a tax that's based on the cost of inflation currently and inflation ticks up? And so that tax slightly adjusts as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Now that has to go to a vote of the people. What if there's, you know, uh, any, any, what if the board of equalization or the state franchise tax board makes a regulatory ruling that slightly increases tax rates for some small classification of business operator or something like that, you know, that might affect a handful of small businesses or major corporations across the state. And now you have to have a statewide vote of every California voter. I mean, the expense of doing these things, these elections aren't cheap, first of all. So the expense of micromanaging budget uh, for a state of 40 million people and every single little ticky tack little charger fee uh, starts to get quite overwhelming. People already, all my friends and family and neighbors tend to complain about all these ballot measures. You know, we had 17 on the ballot this year. I can't even read all these things. What am I... Imagine voting on every little small, you know, there's a dollar tax increase for diesel trucks or whatever it might be. And now I got to vote on every one of those. I mean, what a nightmare. And how can you do business like that as a state serving 40 million people? And so you can imagine that could grind government to a halt, which if if that's happening, you know, for fire protection districts, organizations like Cal Fire, um, et cetera, are major partners of ours, whether it's on, you know, responses to major emergencies such as earthquakes or flooding or wildfire, et cetera. And if Office of Emergency Services, CAL FIRE, all these sorts of key critical infrastructure uh, personnel are being squeezed because the state doesn't have any revenue coming in because it just can't simply even conduct business, that's going to be very problematic to our communities. Yeah, you know, and I think back to, I mean, just what you're saying, not only the, the number of initiatives that we're, we have on a ballot last year, great example, but I think sometimes for folks to understand competing issues, and we saw that in November with the gaming initiatives, right? We had right. one group, um, 
representing tribes that said we're against it. We had another group representing another group of tribes that said, no, we're for it. And, you know, I think, you know, certainly in the conversations I had with my neighbors, they're like, I, I, I don't understand these. I don't know how to vote. Um, I can imagine this process could further complicate that as well, right? As you've got, again, because it's absent that, that the importance of that process where there's this analysis of the legislation. And here, what we're doing it is, is on the back of a, a, of a cardboard box between neighbors talking about it, right? It's, it's not subject to that really robust discussion and analysis and understanding the impacts. It becomes an emotional based argument. I agree. And most of us don't make great decisions on emotional-based arguments. Heck, I don't like doing my own taxes, let alone voting on every, you know, random tax that might exist in the state of California, half of which might not have any direct impact on me. How am I supposed to make, you know, potentially dozens of decisions across the state? Mm. You need a tax attorney just to figure out what these things are going to do. And I'm sure there's going to be a special interest that's funded that's going to try to convince me through 30 second commercials that I don't want to watch because I'd rather Netflix and chill than watch some <laughs> commercial thing. But, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, careful what you wish for because uh, what a nightmare that's going to create. And more importantly, you know, aside from the, 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 the frustration of having to vote on all of those things uh, would be the, difficulty of governing under that sort of situation. I mean, imagine in your household or for those of us that might have a small business, if you had to, you know, every minor decision you had to wait two years on in order to know, you know, you you go back to, because these ballot measures only come up every two years during the even numbered elections. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you're having to wait two years to know if you can negotiate that contract for your workforce or whether you can invest in this new infrastructure that you're going to need to meet the task. Our world's moving faster than that today. We don't, we don't have time to, to wait on those sorts of things. And I think it's just going to be very difficult for the state. Yeah. You know, and part of the, part of the motivation for today's, you know, podcast, Kyle, for us obviously was, you know, one is I suspect that there's a lot of folks uh, at the local government level that aren't aware uh, of this. And, and, and even at the community level, right, at the citizen level, it's coming. We still have, a, you know, a year and a half or a year and three quarters before it comes down. But um, I, I see this podcast as a, at least as the beginning of a call to action. And that's a piece that I want to talk about with you t- today is certainly um, you know, uh, providing awareness, which is what we're trying to do today is, okay, well, what's coming down the pike? What is it about? What, what do, you know, our analyses uh, indicate the potential impact will be? Is that something significant? And if so, what should we be doing about it? So I want to talk a little bit about the call to action and, you know, what are some of the recommendations that CSDA is making? How can people engage? Obviously, what, you know, we would like to do as an association is to help build those partnerships because I think that's going to be critical uh, as the initiative rolls out in the discussions we have, not only between other governmental agencies, but even as citizens with our own friends and family, right, is is creating that discussion. Okay, if we're not going to have it through a legislative process, then let's let's have it, you know, with our friends and neighbors and help educate people to make an informed decision. 
So what, in your mind, what are some of those calls to action? I'm, I'm preloading the question. I know the answer, but um, maybe you could share with the audience and, and provide some direction. Sure. At this point in time, it's early. And we know that. We know that this is the November 5, 2024 ballot that this measure uh, as of February 1 is now eligible for. Now, the proponents of this measure do have until June of 2024 to consider withdrawing the measure from the ballot. And that would be wonderful if they did. Um, Who knows what those sorts of negotiations and process may or may not look like. In the meantime, I would suggest that it's important for uh, those who are affected by this to study it, to understand it to objectively look at the pros, the cons, the implications, to talk at, to talk with the experts who would be impacted by it and to make a thoughtful and considerate decision. And one thing that, you know, public agencies need to be uh, very thoughtful and prudent and diligent about how they do that process because it's important that uh, they will not be campaigning on this item using taxpayer resources or on taxpayer time, right? What they can do under the law and what's important for them to be able to do is they can take they can take a, a board resolution and adopt a position on the measure. So that is something that's important for them to be able to do, um, just like you would on a piece of legislation to say, we have considered this. This is the impact it would have on our community, on our agency, on the services we provide, and therefore we are in opposition to it. Mm-hmm. However, when they are talking to the public, uh, they can share that they have that opposed position, but they should not be out there using government resources to advocate one way or another to politic for it uh, on, you know, on on their time uh, using their resources. Mm-hmm. Now, what can they do when the public asks them about it? They can give them objective information. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can share their understanding of what it does, how it would affect their agency, what the proponents are saying about it, uh, what the potential concerns might be. They can give a, a fair and balanced uh, overview of it. And then on their own time, you know, there, there need to be prudent with taxpayer resources on a political issue, on, a, on an issue that's you know, going to be on the ballot uh, that doesn't interfere with their First Amendment rights uh, as, as an American. And so while they're off the clock, certainly uh, using their own resources, they can go out, they can talk to their neighbors about it and they should. Um, Now their neighbors probably aren't going to care until it starts getting close to election time. (laughs) uh, Unless they happen to know somebody who's, you know, involved with the particular campaign. Um, And, you know, as it gets down to that point, um, that's to be something that they, they would probably want to consider for those who are board members, elected board members, you know, certainly um, they are not, you know, paid employees of the agency. And so as long as they're not using district resources to do so, um, they should go out, you know, as a board member, as a as a politician, as a mm-hmm. as a representative of the community, and they can speak their mind very clearly. They should make sure that when they're doing so, that they're using their title as a board member for purposes of identification and that they're not necessarily speaking on behalf of the agency unless that's an approved message that the agency has you know, approved for them. But certainly if the agency has adopted an opposed position, they could go out and say, you know, I'm John or Jane so-and-so. I'm a board member of this agency. 
which has an opposed position. Let me tell you how I feel about this and why I am opposed to this. And that would be a good way of talking about it. And, you know, at some points as this becomes, you know, closer to an actual decision, it's probably important, you know, if, if uh, these proponents haven't chosen to withdraw it by then that they start having more and more active conversations, whether it's with the media, uh, with their neighbors, with other stakeholders, et cetera. Yeah. And I would think based on, on that, as we, we get more clarity about where the initiative is going, if it looks like it's headed for the November ballot, you know, we'll, we'll have you back. We'll have more, maybe a little bit more dis- discussion on this. I know that today, you know, we've kind of scratched the surface on this. And again, my intent was one was just to create some awareness because in my conversations with other fire chiefs and even other, um, you know, government officials, nobody's really heard about this. And I think it's important that we at least create some awareness, let, you know, folks get uh, into looking at the proposed language and and some of the analyses um, and have some sense of, well, what might the impact be to my, my, to my agency? And, and, and and Chris, if I can interrupt just to say, and why is that important now? Why, why even pay attention to this so early then Kyle? I mean, if this is not really happening until November of 2024, well, I'll tell you why. And I'll tell you, why is CSDA so engaged on this? And why are we talking to our members about it? Why do we think that's appropriate for us to be doing right now? For, for two very important reasons. Number one, this has a retroactive provision in it to January 1, 2022. Mm-hmm. So we want to, it's important for us and it's imp- to, to inform our membership and to make sure that they understand and consider the impact that this could have on any tax or fee that they're thinking about right now, or that they're looking to place before their board or place on the ballot. That's a new decision point that they're all going to have to keep in in mind until this measure is taken up or withdrawn. And so that's a very important reason for us to be out and telling everybody about this. Number two, we think that's important that special districts and other local agencies and stakeholders and any, I mean, really anybody in California that's concerned about efficient, effective uh, essential services in their communities and regions and across the state, that they consider adopting a position on this today because if we follow the precedent that's been established on this topic in 2018, there was a negotiation that took place. There was a compromise that took place. And if the powers that be that are at those tables that are having those conversations are not aware of the concerns of our essential local service providers and the implications of this, because this is a very complicated measure that's all encompassing, touches all sorts of areas. And so you could look, it's easy for some people to look past those if that's not their specialty, if that's not their focus. So it's important that we raise our voice, make people aware of that so that those people that'll be in those rooms making those decisions can consider our concerns and make sure that those are hopefully resolved with anything that may or may not happen in that regard. And so I think that it's very important not to just wait. Um, It's a big enough uh, risk. It's a big enough threat. Uh, You can imagine as we've talked about this, the type of implications it could have on the level of service, on the cost of service. Uh, Frankly, it's, you know, I think to say severe is potentially an understatement. Mm -hmm. Um, It all depends on, the court cases, of course, but why would we want to risk the future of our communities on a court decision that we're going to have to pay a bunch of lawyers to figure out when we can decide that right here and now today? 
Yeah, I I couldn't agree more, Kyle. And, and um, you know, I, I genuinely appreciate um, you creating that awareness for us on Cal Chiefs so that we can we can begin to conduct some of that outreach just to your very point is let's get people um, aware of it, understanding what the implications are. Maybe we can build some momentum uh, around um, that awareness and, you know, demonstrate that, there, hey, there's there is genuine concern across the state in what the impact to uh, government services will be. Um, so um, I certainly want to respect the time today. I, I really appreciate that you've carved out a little bit of time for us. Uh, again, I know we could talk a lot more about this, and at some point I'd like to have you know additional conversation, but I really appreciate your time today. And, and sort of uh, maybe in closing, is there anything else you'd like to add at this point to the conversation maybe that we've not talked about? Chief Tubbs, I just want to thank you, your organization, and all the men and women out there that are working so hard on our behalf, on behalf of our communities to keep us safe, uh, particularly these, you know, these last several years between the pandemic and the wildfires. I know how, I, I, will, I shouldn't say I know how hard it's been. I've, I've observed how hard it seems to be, and you all stand, you know, very stoically uh, in those situations and uh, keep on showing up to our doorsteps, uh, to our cars in the middle of an accident or whatever it is. And I just, I, I, I'm so grateful. Um, so I just want to thank you. Thank you for the time. Thank you for the opportunity. And if anybody wants to learn more about this topic, they can go to our website, csda.net and specifically csda.net slash take dash action, csda.net slash take dash action. And we have uh, a web page up there that has an overview, you know, links to the language, press releases that have been put out by the coalition, et cetera, and they can learn more. Well, thank you. And, you know, Kyle, I would say that it's a reciprocal appreciation. You know, we're very grateful for CSDA because if it wasn't for you folks and the work that you're doing, staying on top of these things, we wouldn't even be aware and we would be subject to an impact that we didn't even see coming. So, uh, again, on behalf of the California Fire Chiefs Association, um, please extend our deep appreciation for the work that all of you are doing at CSDA on our behalf. We really, really appreciate that. Our pleasure. Have an, an awesome afternoon. We'll chat again soon. Looking forward to it.